0: Hi, folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is July the 8th, 2021. Uh, this is episode 2909, 2909 of the Survival Podcast as we dig into the Expert Council Q&A show for the week, and I've got a great lineup of our Expert Council members for you today. Remember, there are more Council members than you'll hear from today. You can learn all about the Expert Council and everybody on it by going to the thesurvivalpodcast.com and under the About tab, you'll find Meet the Expert Council. You see everybody there and what they can answer for you. Here's who I have for you today. Darby Simpson on feeding scraps to pigs, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Wow, 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 yeah. Uh, Tim Toolman Cook on another just great grab bag of tool questions. Derek Pietro on storing a vehicle long-term over the winter in a cold, and I mean a very cold, cold climate. Jessica Dixie Mills on hiking with young children, in this case a 4-year-old, uh, giving them a great experience so they'll want to keep doing it. Nicole Awesome Sauce on boiling eggs and doing it so the dad gone eggs can actually be peeled. Dr. Ken Berry on dealing with high blood pressure without medication. And I have a quote of the day for you from John Piers. This actually ended up being uh, the quote that I used for the uh, thumbnail graphic for my, my Miyagi vi- uh, Mornings video today. Uh, but I liked it so much, I decided to talk about the quote itself. It's by a dude named John Pierce. He once said, the solution to a problem changes the nature of the problem. Boy, if there is ever something to examine and look at as a quote of the day from a systems thinking mindset, this is the one. Uh, and I think we'll have a good time when we talk about that quote in my anchor segment today. With that, let's go ahead and dive on into it and lead off with Darby Simpson on feeding scraps to pigs the good, the bad, and the ugly.
1: hello once again everyone darby simpson of grass-fed life back to answer another question that came in via email this time we got a question from jason and jason's main question is what table scraps can i feed to my pigs the details are darby i took your advice we wanted a pig so we got four way to ramp up jason They are currently in a 16 by 32 foot pen being trained to a hot wire after which we hope to pasture them up to a portion uh, on our five acres and the pigs are around 12 weeks old currently feeding them a generic mix made up by our local mill and supplementing them with table scraps from time to time. In my attempts to search for an answer about what is good I keep running into articles about laws and regulations. I do not care about these. Only about the health of the animals in my care. What is off-limits? How should it be processed? For instance, could we give them the carcasses of our chickens that we made stock from? Can we ask local restaurants for food waste? Thanks for any and all help, and thank you for your Grass-Fed Life podcast. I enjoy listening to you anywhere I can. Well, Jason, thank you for the kind words. As far as what can you feed your pigs... um, So, pigs are a true omnivore. They will literally convert almost anything into meat, which is pretty amazing. Now, just because you can feed them something doesn't mean you should feed them something. What do I mean by that? Um... So, you know, could you feed them, uh, you know, past do ding-dongs and twinkies? Yes. And they, they would like them. Uh, does that mean you should? Mm, probably not. But as far as food scraps go, like any kind of what we would consider waste, and particularly fruits and vegetables, you know, if it comes from a restaurant or from your own kitchen or a grocery store or what have you, if it's a whole food, I'm all for it. You know, Uh your question is what's off limits? <sighs> Again, technically, there's not a whole lot that's really off limits per se, but it doesn't mean that it's going to be the best for the pig, right? They're going to eat grasses. They're going to eat legumes like clover. They will eat um acorns if you have a a good mast in the fall on your five acres you're saying you want them to till it up they will till it up they may till it up more than you want keep that in mind you may want to mitigate how much tilling they do in a particular area um they'll create holes and uh, kill plants if you're not careful but you know back to the food scraps you know could you toss a old chicken carcass out there sure is it going to hurt them no, they might munch on it. They they also might just let it lay there and stink. You know, you might be better off to put that into a compost pile. Um, you know, things I would be careful of giving them any kind of processed food because you, you're turning these pigs into food for yourself, and you you are what you eat, and your pigs are what they ate. Um, I think. Probably my my bigger warning here, and I I learned this firsthand one year. Um, I you know I had a buddy that had a about a hundred acre vegetable operation about ten miles from here, and I would get a lot of his scraps to feed my pigs. You know I mean any kind of squash or pumpkin you could imagine headed into the fall. You know his his like old uh, you know peppers and tomatoes and. Things of that nature, I would give my pigs, and they'll they eat them, right? They'll eat them. Um, But what I learned in watching my pigs was, like, you can't just give them that diet. They have got to have a source of protein. So when you're feeding them vegetable scraps, they're getting, you know, yes, vitamins and minerals and lots of sugary carbohydrates. They were not getting protein. And that's my caution here, like give them as many scraps as they'll eat, cut down on your feed bill, you know, the stuff you're buying from your mill, but like your, your mill, unless you've got another source of something like that is your, that is your protein source, whether that's peanuts or, uh, non GMO roasted soybeans, hopefully you're feeding soy. That's what it is. I mean, do the best you can. Um, that's the protein source. And, you know, they kind of need that for balancing. Now, if by some miracle you had like an endless supply of acorns and chestnuts that you could get in bags, you could feed them those nuts along with vegetable scraps and maybe still offer them a little bit of feed and they're going to do pretty well, particularly if you're, if you're pasturing them. Um, but you just don't want to give them a diet that's like pure, carbohydrates and sugar because while they'll eat it all they'll lose weights uh, and they they're they're gonna get the squirts I I've, like I, I've seen it I've witnessed it they've got to have a balanced diet so again I would stay away from super processed stuff I know a lot of people at least for cattle like to use spent brewers grains I've never fed those to pigs I think you could anything like that if you had if you had a resource for something like that you could try that. You just need to really watch them and see how they react. You know, do their bellies stay nice and fat and plump, or are they kind of shrinking up and getting skinny? That could be a sign of some intestinal distress. You know, what does their stool look like? I mean, it should be, you know, piles of scat, not diarrhea. Um, watch them. See how they're doing. You know, how do they act? Are their ears perked up? You know, these are all signs uh, that maybe you fed them something that while they ate it, it doesn't really agree with their system. Try to keep a balanced diet in front of them. Um, But in terms of feeding them stuff, you know, like they'll eat it. I just, and I know people that do it, and I'm not judging, but like I personally wouldn't take, you know, expired Wonder Bread and... And feed it to my pigs. I mean, maybe as a treat, okay? Um, particularly as it gets closer to time to uh, load them into the trailer. <laughs> if you can, if they know you've got a treat, um, you can actually use something like that to get them to hop up into the trailer easier and, and remove the stress from that situation. We've got videos at Grassfed Life that that show how to how to load pigs stress-free, like stress-free for you, stress-free for them. Fast, efficient, nobody gets hurt, they auto-load onto the trailer. There are some tricks that go with that. But using food, it can be one of the tools we use when it comes time to haul them off to the butcher. So, you know, that's that's my advice. We have, generally speaking, here, we have done a balanced ration from the mill, and it did have mineral supplements in it because they need good minerals, Obviously, they had access to some pasture and some nut trees and, you know, things of that nature, but their their main diet, when we're talking about a business, which is what I do, versus a homestead, which is what you're doing, um, you know, their main diet here was a non-GMO and organic mix of of grains because I had a production schedule to meet. You've got a little bit more time there, but... You know, one thing to be aware of is making sure you've got your butcher date set up well in advance. Butchers are hard to get right now. And then you gotta make sure that you, you hit the weights that you need. You need 250 pounds, really. I mean, if they're 230, 240, okay. But really you want 250 to 300 pounds. So keep that in mind as well when you're feeding them these scraps. I'd say let the scraps be a supplement. Learn what works and doesn't work. And then next year when you do this again, maybe you'll know better about what you can get locally and what works for your pigs in conjunction with your pasture and your feed mix. Jason, I hope that's helpful. Um, if you have a question and you're listening to this on anything to do with farming, shoot it to me, derby at grassfedlife.co. Uh We appreciate you sending your questions in and listening to us. Please check out all of the resources we have at grassfedlife.co. Lots of free podcasts, lots of free videos, and even a free mini farming course. And, of course, there are some paid-for resources out there as well. If you happen to be a TSP MSB member, you do get a 15% discount off of anything you buy. We actually had a gentleman this week buy our full course, and he saved... $75, which more than paid for his TSP MSV membership for a whole year. So, as always, thanks for your questions. Everyone have a wonderful weekend, and take care. And uh, next up, we have another
0: great grab bag of questions for Tim the Toolman Cook. With that, hey, Tim, take it away, man.
2: Hey, guys, Toolman Tim here coming to you from the workshop at ToolmanTim.co, where we build business, create community, find freedom, and share success back again to answer a grab bag of tool related questions. So let's dive right in and see how many we can knock out this week. First question comes from Adam over on MeWe. He wants to know if I have a recommendation for an infrared thermometer. Well, I personally use the Atexity brand, the one off of Amazon. It's a generic import and this one's branded under a ton of different names. But for me, all I really need it for is finding a frozen clog in a water or drain line and this thing really works. An infrared thermometer is not a tool I use all the time, but it's certainly a tool with a thousand uses. There are tons of more expensive ones out there, and brand name ones as well, but the Atexity one off Amazon has served me really well. I'm not doing any highly technical welds that need to be at very specific temperatures. But be advised, this one does take a 9-volt battery, which isn't the end of the world, it just requires a person to keep some of them on hand. Second question... Ken asked on YouTube what zero-turn mower it is that I'm using and if I could share the pros and the cons of a zero-turn mower for someone looking at getting into the game. Well, first I would say don't be intimidated by a zero-turn mower because I was for a long time and they're, they're really completely foreign to someone who hasn't driven one before and it might be enough to keep you from trying it simply because it's different. Try to find someone with one or maybe even a rental place that rents them out. They might seem like they'd be difficult to use, but absolutely within five minutes, you'll be driving one and be so comfortable that you wonder why you were ever intimidated in the first place. Beyond the two-handle control function, everything else is the same as far as the normal functions go. The pros of a zero turn, the biggest one is how much faster I am able to get a job done. The mower itself is way faster than a traditional ride-on. My calculations are I save probably about 30% in time on each lawn that I do with a zero turn versus a traditional ride-on. Secondly, its, abil- its ability to turn extremely tight. It allows you to get in and around trees and shrubs a lot closer than a standard ride-on would, which again speeds up your mowing and eliminates a ton of weed trimming. And the third and often overlooked pro of a zero turn is the easy use on your arms and upper body. Traditionally, mowers rely on your strength to pull the steering wheel and force the mower to go where you want it to go, really hard on the shoulders over time. With a zero turn, even the slightest movement of the handle will turn you where you want to go, which means you can spend more time on a zero turn without getting wore out and fatigued. The main cons are zero turns tend to be a little more expensive, all things being equal, although they are quickly coming down in price. And secondly, even though you will get used to it, using it really quickly, it it can be a bit tricky on wet ground and loose soil. When you first start out, you'll tend to make all your turns tight and hard by pulling all the way back on one handle and all the way forward on the other. And this will basically make you pivot on a single tire, which can tear up the grass a little. So practice a bunch, learning to ease on the handle of the tire you're reversing. And when you first get started, don't mow right after it rains. One final consideration in the con side of things is that bagging systems for zero turns are harder to come by, a bit more expensive, and a little more difficult to install. So if that's something you're looking at, just keep that in consideration. I bought a standard 42-inch zero-turn Toro because I wanted it to fit into most backyards and onto my 48-inch utility trailer, which it still barely does with the discharge shoot-up. But honestly, it really only fits through about half the gates I wanted it to. They're a tight squeeze, but they really are great. Most times I just drive it from house to house instead of loading it back on my trailer anyway, so it's a lot of fun to play with. Now, next question comes from Chicken Hawk Farmstead, and he wanted to know which trimmer head I'd settled on when I upgraded my 20-volt DeWalt trimmer, battery the battery one. So I ended up testing out two, and they both worked really great. And they took the trimmer from being a decent tool to a really good tool, almost a great tool. So the first head I tried was a Husqvarna T35, and it I get recommended that from a couple of different landscapers, but I ended up settling on the still 25-2, because it's a more traditional head, and I've used still gear for a long time, and I have a lot of extra parts kicking around. They both work really well. They both run either the 0.8 or the 0.95 twine, but I did find the 0.95 twine tended to not feed quite as well. It got tangled up a bit more inside the spool, so for that reason, I stuck with the 0.8 but I use the square style stuff that has four sharp cutting edges all the way around. You can buy a big spool of that from Echo, and it works really well. It cuts way above its weight class. So, final question for today comes from Aaron over on YouTube, and he wanted to know if the new DeWalt 60-volt weed trimmer with the quick attachments are compatible with the still combi system. So, the short answer is, unfortunately, no. But it's more of a still problem than a DeWalt problem. Still built their combi system with a proprietary locking system, but DeWalt ended up going with the industry standard that's been adopted by many other companies. So DeWalt is not compatible, unfortunately, with Ego, Milwaukee, or Still, as they all designed their own. But the good news is, they are compatible with Ryobi, Trimmer Plus, Greenworks, Poulan, Craftsman, Troy-Bilt, Remington, and Husqvarna. So even though DeWalt has an edger and a brush cutter, they don't have a sidewalk and brushing attachment, the one I want for when the frost first comes out in the winter, but Ryobi does, so I'm going to pick one of those up and test it out on the DeWalt. And my thoughts so far on the 60 volt DeWalt trimmer, it's the closest thing I found to a solid gas trimmer in a battery kit. It comes with a 9 amp hour rated flex volt battery. The runtime is decent, but it does love to draw its power. I recently did an hour and a half of trimming on an acreage and went through a nine and two six amp hour batteries, which really isn't that bad. I hope that helps. That's it for me this week. If you haven't, take a minute and go by my YouTube or Odyssey channel where I just did a follow-up video on the Furman TriFuel Generator where I answered the most often asked questions I get from the community. And if you haven't, follow me on Float. Drop by there because, wow, that is a growing community and it's quickly becoming one of my go-to platforms. So guys, as always, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. And I have all of the, the
0: items that uh, Tim covered uh, in the show notes for you today in the links where you can take a look at them if you want to know more about them. Next up, we have Derek Pietro on storing a vehicle long-term over the winter in a really cold climate. Derek, take it away.
3: Hey, TSP listeners. Derek here from AffordableDCGenerators.com. The home of the affordable DC power supply solution if you are looking to use an alternator to run DC accessories or recharge batteries. I have got a question from Scott D. about storing a vehicle long-term. Let's break it down. Parking my truck for approximately eight months over winter in Alaska. Details. I will be parking my pickup truck over the winter while out of state. Do you have any tips for storage? 2000 Ford F-250 gas engine. Curious about engine fogging or raising a vehicle... Off the ground onto jack stands. All right, Scott. There's a couple of systems on a vehicle that we want to go through to ensure that they stay in good condition when we're parking a vehicle for an extended period of time. Now, this is going to kind of apply to a lot of different things that have an engine. Realistically, wintertime, it's not a big concern. Now, of course, if we're like storing a boat and it's not a climate-controlled space, a boat has fresh water which is used to cool the engine directly or... Is circulated through a heat exchanger or if you have a stern drive or outboard there's going to be fresh water in there so those particular systems on a boat like i mentioned are winter sensitive because obviously if it freezes that little bit of expansion can crack an engine block or a stern drive or an outboard and all that's big money but on a car we don't have that problem so the season is not necessarily a concern long-term storage is so let's break down each system you the suspension you mentioned putting up on jack stands Which is going to basically allow the suspension to droop out and it's not going to load up in your case the leaf springs Of the truck now, is that a big concern? Ah, man, I don't know There are plenty of trucks that are 30 40 50 years on the road and they sit for long periods of time And they don't necessarily sag the springs If you were running a plow Obviously you'd want to take the plow off and get rid of some of that weight or at least leave it in the down position if it's a work truck Maybe not leave the bed of it loaded up with something that could put additional load on the springs for no reason. But I think this one boils down to personal preference. I do see some people picking vehicles up like that. But, I mean, leaf springs, coils, torsion bars, they're not, like, sagging out because they're sitting for long periods of time. Now, if you put the jack stand underneath the axle, that would not droop the suspension out that would pick the tires up off the ground. If you had really tall jack stands, you could put them under the frame and that would allow the suspension to droop and hopefully if they're tall enough, it would allow the tires to not contact the ground. So that would kind of do both items. And sure, that would maybe prevent the tires from developing a flat spot as they were sitting for eight months. The piece that's touching the ground, that could potentially flat spot. But that was really more of an old bias ply tire thing from like way back in the day. It's not really a radial tire concern. And sure... Sitting for eight months, your first couple of miles, you're going to hear thump, 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 as that flat spot hits. But as that tire warms up, that's going to go away. I mean, that's just something that's been sitting for that long. Not necessarily a concern with the radial tire. Sure, if you pick it up, you won't have that flat spot. As long as they're properly inflated, cars sitting on dealer lots, for the ones that are garbage nobody wants, and they sit there for six months to a year, okay, maybe the salesman moves it around the floor a couple of times, or they move it outside a couple of times, but those are sitting for long periods of time, so... I don't know, back in the day, maybe this was a problem, but not really a concern. Now, working our way around the vehicle, let's talk about the engine. That's going to be one of the critical items. So, long-term storage, coolant, as long as it's in good shape, and we test it to make sure that it protects down to a certain level, we don't have to worry about that particular system. Fuel systems are a big one. So, on your vehicle, it's fuel-injected. We can't really put, like, leaded race fuel or aviation fuel That's 100 LL. That's not the fuel that runs the turbines. That's piston-driven. You can get that type of fuel down at the airport, and you can put that into your snowblower, snowmobile, sea dew, watercraft, boat, whatever, as long as it doesn't have fuel injection with an oxygen sensor and a catalytic converter. So this is basically anything that's going to be older. Sure, there's some newer stuff that has that, but there's also some carbureted stuff that's new that does have a catalytic converter, so you got to be careful with that. You don't want to put leaded fuel into something with an O2 sensor and a catalytic converter, like a modern vehicle that was built, like, in the last couple decades. So that's kind of like an old-school way of doing it, especially with stuff like watercraft, ATVs. There's a lot of stuff out there that doesn't have that. It's just a basic straight carburetor in an engine, and you can run the thing out of fuel, put a little bit of race gas or leaded aviation fuel in it, run it in there a little bit, and it's going to last forever. I mean, that stuff is the high test. Now, you can't do that in your car, so what do we do? You mentioned that it's going to be stored in winter, so I'm taking that phrasing as it's going to be stored outside. So if your vehicle's in a climate-controlled area, we're not worried about condensation building up in the gas tank and contaminating the fuel. Storing it outside is a bigger deal because that water condenses inside the fuel tank, goes into the fuel. The fuel does have ethanol, so it doesn't stay separated. It basically blends together and can really ruin the gas quickly, not to mention the gas sucks to begin with. So I would personally leave the tank full. Yeah, you can put an additive in it, you can put that stable, whatever, but realistically, if it's sitting for eight months, get some good, fresh gas in there, fill it right to the top, don't keep pumping it in, but just let it click, done, and I think you'll be in good shape. The key is to not store it with old gas, and let's not get moisture in the system, that's really it. So that's taking care of the fuel system. On the engine itself, for the electrical, we want to keep the battery in the vehicle if we have no other option. So this would mean maybe disconnecting the negative cable, spraying the terminal down with some oil, protective film to keep it from corroding, and that's about all you can do. Now, if, if you can take the battery out, bonus, disconnect everything, yank the battery, perhaps keep it indoors in a nice warmer location. So preferably keep the battery inside, and even if you have a trickle charger, and keep it on there so it keeps it topped off over time. But anything outside of the vehicle is going to help. Now, I doubt on your 04 F-250, it's going to be a problem, but a more modern vehicle. And some pesky cars, if you disconnect the battery for a long period of time, you will get a radio code. And if you don't know the radio code, you're not listening to the radio anytime soon. So I think Fords and some aftermarket radios and stuff, they have a code. I believe Honda does. You might want to do your due diligence for anybody else for a different type of vehicle, but make sure you got that code, because if you don't, there's really not an easy way around it. The other thing on a modern car is there's lots of modules that are going to complain. So some vehicles, when you disconnect the battery, will start to throw trouble codes and do some weird stuff that is, like, dealership only. So your Super Duty doesn't have that problem, but I would be leery of a new, new car. Disconnecting the battery for long periods of time does cause problems. Like, for example, you hit the auto down on your window, and it doesn't auto down. It just basically comes down an inch and stops. And so those have to, like, relearn themselves. Some funky stuff. So... Keeping those vehicles with the battery in them is okay. I would recommend trickle charging those and just keeping the battery in the vehicle. All right, so that's fuel system, electrical, engine mechanical itself. This is where you're talking about the fogging. So basically, inside of the cylinder, in the engine, you're leaving it for a long period of time. Condensation can build up on the cylinder wall and leave surface rust. And for a long enough time, it can actually stick the piston to the cylinder. Now in eight months, probably not. But that's really where engine fogging comes in. So... A lot of power sports when you winterize, so basically ATVs or watercraft, snowmobiles, when you're changing the season, fogging is part of that. Now on a modern vehicle with fuel injection, I would probably hesitate to just go ahead and spray fogging oil down the intake tube. If you were gonna do that, you probably wanna disconnect it on the engine itself, so that way we're not spraying that fluid through the mass airflow sensor, which is on the intake tube between the air filter and the engine. Um, but that's probably overkill in this situation. Uh, if you want to go ahead and take the extra steps, remove all the spark plugs, and your vehicle does have a Triton engine, which are notorious for cracking plugs, you could have this situation. Pull them out, spray the fogging oil directly into the cylinders. If you have old spark plugs, jam some new ones in there, or just put the old ones back in it. And consider it good. That's, that's probably more than enough, but certainly something you should do if it's going to be sitting outside. If it's climate controlled, I'd probably skip it. So those are really the main mechanical systems I'd be concerned about. Uh, the other one, rats, literally rats. They're going to make a home in there. They're going to get into the air box. They're going to try to get inside the vehicle, and wherever they're living, it's going to be destroyed. So I would go to whatever extent you can to keep things from chewing on wires or making homes in places they shouldn't be, like under the dashboard, in your vents, in the air box, or in the engine. So whatever that may be, if you put a glue trap down and it's inside the car, Great, you've trapped the rat from doing any damage, but now you have a dead rat in your truck for eight months. So uh, people use mothballs. I don't know how effective they are, and not to mention your vehicle smells like mothballs when you're done. But Rat Patrol, make sure they don't get in anything. I think if you did all of those I suggested, your vehicle is going to be pretty happy for the eight months. And when you get back, you're going to basically jam the battery in it, connect it up, fire it right up, and you're not going to have any troubles. When you're restarting a vehicle that's been sitting for a lengthy period of time, give it a couple minutes. Fire it up, let it come up to temperature, drive it nice and slow. Don't just instantly get in and start doing 80 miles an hour. You know, give it some time. Get the fluid circulating, get it up to temperature before you really put it back to work again. So hope that helps you, Scott. Good luck with your super duty. I think you'll be in good shape. Take care.
0: Good stuff from Derek, and um, I'll reiterate the danger of what rodents can do to vehicles without sitting. Um the first Forerunner that I owned, so we had two Forerunners and we're now on a third vehicle system. So this was a while back. Um, it got driven almost daily, and my wife and I were down, fortunately, near the Toyota dealership, and we were doing something else. I was in my vehicle, she was in hers, and just worked out. It was barely running, the Forerunner, and so she limped it to the Toyota dealership, and I went and picked her up, and we left it there. And the poor mechanic near had a heart attack when they started digging into the engine. And the rat not only was using uh, the vehicle as a home while the vehicle was routinely being run, but had enjoyed a joyride while chewing on whatever wire screwed whatever sensor up that screwed the whole damn vehicle up and almost shut it completely down. Uh, They fixed it. It was over $700 to repair, not covered under the warranty, because the warranty doesn't cover a rat eating away wires. And uh, the mechanic had, like I said, near heart attack. And then a rat ran through the. I really wish there was a video of this. It was apparently a very large wood rat who hauled ass right down the center of the uh, the bay uh, through the middle of the Toyota dealership. And all the you know big strong mechanics were running like little girls. Apparently, when this happened. Uh, and somebody, it was almost like a scene out of a Christmas story with the squirrel. Somebody figured out to open the damn door and let the rat run out since nobody could catch or wanted to catch or kill the rat. Uh, so it does happen. Um, I don't have a real good solution to keep it from happening. I loathe poisons, but I will tell you, poisons like old cobbler, when used properly with the boxes where nothing but a rat can get into them, Are effective and they are extremely safe. They're especially if they were under a hood because I would worry more about the rats under the hood of a vehicle than inside the vehicle interior. That's pretty well sealed off, but they like to get like in the back of the engine and things like that. So if you can put one or two of those in there with, you know, a couple pieces of it each. Any rodent that gets in there, it's going to smell that, be hungry, go in there and eat it, and die a very horrible death. And I, I wish they didn't have to die a horrible death, but they have to die. Um, that's my best suggestion. Uh, or just accept that you may be doing some major and sometimes expensive repairs. And this is not just a vehicle sitting. But a vehicle sitting outdoors in a cold climate just seems like it's, it's probably more likely than not to occur. I don't really have another solution. Anybody that does, I'd I'd love to hear what your idea uh, might be to help prevent this from occurring. I guess you could wrap the whole damn thing in hardware cloth. Uh, (laughs) Next up, Jessica Dixie Mills with a question on hiking with a 4-year-old and basically how to make sure that youngins that are taken on hikes actually get great experiences, and then that way they'll want to become lifelong people who take treks in the woods.
4: Hey TSPers, Jessica aka Dixie here from Homemade Wanderlust over in YouTube land and today I'm here to answer a question from Dylan. Dylan asked me to give the ins and outs of hiking with a four-year-old. So first Dylan, thank you for the question and props to you for wanting to be a positive influence on kids at an early age. I feel like Getting them out there early is already encouraging a healthy lifestyle, making exercise fun, while also getting some vitamin D and dirt in their immune systems. But to be honest with you, as an adult, I've never been hiking with a four-year-old. I have been a Girl Scout troop leader in the past. Uh, My mom and I were leaders for my little sisters, so had some experience with the outdoors and children at that time. Uh, but unfortunately, I haven't had any of my own children yet other than my dogs. Uh, but I do have some resources that might be useful to you or anyone else who is interested in hiking with children. So I know a couple who through-hiked the Appalachian Trail with a baby that was under a year old when they started. She was like 10 or 11 months old. And they also... After that, a couple years later, biked the Great Divide Trail from Canada to Mexico. And she now has a baby brother. So I'm looking forward to seeing them adventure with two kids now because they're just a family who, who doesn't make excuses. You know, oh, well, we can't go outside because we have kids or we can't do anything because we have kids. They're like, no, we're going to do this. And one of the big reasons is because we want to, to raise our children like this. So, uh, I realize you may not be up for diving into a long-distance adventure like, you know, a through hike of a 2,000-mile trail or a biking path, um, but they still put a lot of good info and content out there. So what I've learned from them and from other families who hike with kids is that whether you're doing a short Or a long hike, you try to make it as fun for the kids as you can. You know, this isn't like a militant thing. Like, you have to get out there, and you're gonna like it. You know, it just it doesn't have to be like that. So, first off, let them take a lot of breaks. I mean, they're little. You know, make sure it's fun, and when they get tired, they need to take a break. Maybe don't start off with, you know, a super long trail for their first time out there. Start with little, you know, bits and let them build up. Let them climb and throw rocks and, you know, do all the things that kids want to do, but, you know, in a safe way. Like they're not on the playground throwing a rock at a kid's head. You know, let them, let them be kids out there, uh, while you're guiding them how to do it without hopefully hurting themselves badly or other people. Uh, special snacks as rewards for hiking. So, you know, if you try to, Make sure your kids are eating a pretty healthy diet, you know, maybe let them splurge a little bit, but because they're out there hiking, they're working it off, you know, and, and that way they kind of relate like, oh, when we go hiking, we get to do things that are extra fun or, you know, that I don't always get to do. So it's, it's more exciting than maybe normal life. And then I know a lot of parents like to take their kids out for ice cream after they hike. So it's like, you know, we go out, we do this thing as a family, and then we get to go get ice cream. Uh, and then, you know, as they get older, of course, this is going to depend on the age, but as early as you can, let them take ownership of the hike too. Maybe they can help pick the place that you're going. Hey, do you want to see a waterfall today or a view with some pretty mountains in the distance? You know, do you want to go somewhere where we're more likely to see some spring flowers or, you know, so you just kind of give them some options so they feel like they've had some sort of part in the planning of it. And then teach them things while they're out there, like, practicing their colors, you know, what color is this bird, what color is this rock, or, you know, counting, counting sticks, counting birds. Uh, you know, it just depends on the age and what skills you're trying to develop, but, you know, let them learn things while they're out there. And then maybe take some small tools with you that they can use, like a water filter. I mean, sure, you can bring your own bottled water for a mile hike, but if you know you're going to come across a water source, why not bring a Sawyer Squeeze that you know, Sawyer Mini, I believe, is about 20 bucks, and you can get these water filters at, at Walmart. Uh, let them learn to filter water and and teach them why they're filtering the water. And it, it is safe to drink this water if we run it through this filter, you know. And and what things in it might make it unsafe. And um, or you could take a stove and let them help cook lunch, like a little um, BRS stove that you can get on Amazon. Weighs. Actually, right under an ounce and you can take a little fuel canister and get a cook pot, you know, and let them do something fun like that, uh, while they're out there. And then let them carry some of their own stuff. You know, you can get a cheap little drawstring backpack. You probably got one laying around at the house anyway, or if they have a, you know, their backpack for school and just let them take some of the 10 essentials of hiking that you should have when you go out hiking with you anyway. You know, they could carry a headlamp. Even if you don't plan on being out there after dark, that's a good thing to have is a backup light source. That's in the 10 essentials of hiking. A water bottle. Trekking poles. You can get cheap ones at Walmart. You can get cheap ones on Amazon, like 20 bucks for a pair. Or let them pick up a stick and walk with it. Uh, but definitely, as I mentioned before, don't do it you know, too heavy and too hard at first. Don't overdo it. Let them take it slow and increase as they go. So I hope some of that helps. Uh, The family that I was talking about that has gone on a lot of these epic adventures with their kids is on Instagram under at the Dirtbag Baby. Uh, They used to be known as Ellie on the AT, but if you search Dirtbag Baby on YouTube, I know they've put some content out there too, but I'll send Jack those links to put in the show notes. Um, I'm also going to include the link to a video I made about hiking with kids that might have a bit more information than what I was able to squeeze into my segment here, and a video about the 10 essentials of hiking, uh, the stuff that you should have when you go in the outdoors. But anyway, thanks again for the question, and if anyone listening has any questions about hiking, backpacking, or how to quit your engineering job to go for a long walk, let me know. Happy trails, y'all.
0: And as you would have guessed, I have Jessica's resources linked in the show notes, including links to the Dirtbag Baby. Anyway, with that, let's go on. And uh, Well, actually, I want to say a little bit on this one before we go to the next segment. Uh, I completely agree with not pushing kids too hard and and making sure you take lots of breaks and things like that and giving them ownership. And sometimes ownership doesn't need to be, hey, do you want to go see a waterfall or do you want to see a lake or whatever? It can be more along the lines of, Let them take ownership on the hike. Here's the sure way to know you're not moving too fast for the small legs of your child. Let them lead. Put them in the front. Let them set the pace. You won't go too fast. You may have to slow yourself down consciously because you'll find yourself walking up onto them, but that's great. And then they feel like it's their hike that they're taking control of and they're on a trail. They're not going to get lost. You're not going to not be able to keep up with them. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that, you know, you take a four year old and say, Hey, head down the trail and take a nap under a tree. I'm just suggesting that they get to walk in front. You lead the way. You tell us what we should, when we should stop. What do we need to look at? Now that you can still say, Hey, look, stop, look, check that out or whatever. And do that too. Like teach them about things. Teach them about really simple things. Kids kids love to learn. You know, I, I, I miss having Mike and Sue. I love having Amy Dingman now to talk about uh, child education, homeschooling, but I miss Mike and Sue. And one of the things that they said that was one of the most impactful things I've ever heard a person say about children and learning was, you cannot keep a child from learning something that they want to learn. And you can't force a child to learn something they don't want to learn. But what you can do is you can encourage them, To want to learn specific things. And then once they want to learn, they'll learn. So, like, I mean, it's amazing to me, like, just to, like, stop with my granddaughter when we take a walk at the nature center. And a little thing, like, some moss on the ground. And say, hey, look at this. And, like, hey, touch it. Pet it like it's a cat. And they feel that little green moss, how soft it is and all. And just to tell them, you know why it's growing here? Because it's wet here. Don't. Don't try to make this, like, if you got a four-year-old, right, don't try to make this a huge lesson about exactly how the water got there. That's all they need to know. For, like, that's step one. They know that the moss grew there because it's wet there, and there's not too much sun, right? And then what will happen is you'll be shocked. You'll be shocked as shit. Like, uh, uh, the next time you go through there, you know, or someplace where there's moss, they'll be like, look, there's moss there because it's wet there. And they start teaching you, and you learn when you teach, and when you teach a child this way, they begin to teach back. That's how you see, I've always said this about teaching. If your students are not so compelled that they start teaching without even realizing it, you're not a good teacher. When you're a good teacher, your teach your students become teachers. And, and it's so simple if we don't overcomplicate it. You're a four year old. You need to learn one thing today. That's it. You learned it. There we go. And if you learn two or three more along the way because I have your interest, great. And if you go to do something like that and that does not catch their interest, stop. It's not that important. Well, Jack said to teach them, yes, if they care. If not, you, you know, we found things like we found uh, big pieces of sticks and stuff that were being used by beavers to build not really a dam, more of the beaver house. And, like, pick one of those sticks up and show them where the beaver chewed on it. Like, they're like, oh, my God. He chewed it? There's so much you can do like that. And then just don't go too far. Because, remember, like, it's one thing to through-hike the Appalachian Trail with a one-year-old. The dirt bag, maybe. You can put a backpack. Four-year-olds weigh a lot more. <laughs> and carry me sucks. So another thing you can look at is maybe some sort of, like, a kind of an off-road uh stroller or something when maybe by four you might not need that but you know when they're in that toddler phase where carry me sucks having some sort of wheeled device in which to place them would be a cool idea just my thoughts on that moving on from there nicole sauce i'm boiling eggs and doing it so peeling is easy peasy
5: Hey, TSP, Nicole Sauce here from the Living Free in Tennessee podcast with a non-expert counsel question, but it is something that was inspired by Chef Keith Snow when he talked about his yummy, yummy curried egg salad, and he mentioned that he didn't have good advice beyond any of the normal advice for getting your eggs hard-boiled and peeled in an efficient manner. He said sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. I have a tried and true way that I've used since moving to the homestead, and I wanted to share it with you because it's something that I haven't ever actually heard anybody talk much about. So, of course, to do hard-boiled eggs, it works great to put them in cold water, bring it to temperature, and then boil them for five minutes, and then get them straight into an icy water bath or a cold water bath so that you have that quick heat change, which will hopefully encourage the inside of the egg to pull away from the shell. That's the way my grandfather did it in his restaurant. He swore by that method that he was buying his eggs from the grocery store. I get my eggs from ducks who lay them in the yard or in their little uh, cube area. And what I've learned over the years is this one thing that works really well. You take the eggs from your poultry... And if they're fresh, you put them on your counter and you write the day on it. And then you wait five to seven days before you hard boil those eggs. What happens is the liquid in the eggs will start evaporating a little bit. And so that the total amount of liquid in the eggs is a little bit less after seven days. Then you hard boil them. And I have no problem at all getting the peels off if I do it that way. A couple of other things I've tried that work great is an egg steamer or steaming your eggs, and that's how Chef Keith Snow does his. That works great. I'm not sure why. Like, I poke a little hole in it. I've aged them for seven days, and they are a little bit easier to peel than if I hard boil them. All of the time that I do this, though, I do take them from hot into cold before peeling, and then from there, I can use them as I want to. So I hope this helps you get over some of the mystery. If you're buying your eggs at the farmer's market and they were just collected, they're fresh. Those puppies need to, a- to age for five to seven days before you're going to get them out of their shells efficiently. And once you know this trick, it's a game changer. Hope this helps you out. If you have any questions for me, just send them over to Jack with TSPC Expert in the subject line. Enjoy your Independence Day weekend and make it a great week.
0: One hundred percent agree. My grandmother uh, used to keep our eggs uh, on a kitchen table. They were never refrigerated and she had bowls that she kept them in. and eggs came in and filled the bowl and then you start filling the other bowl. And if you're gonna boil any eggs, you take them out of the second bowl till the second bowl is empty and you move the other bowl over and then you start filling that bowl and then like that. And that she didn't really ever keep track five to seven days. Um, or anything like that. What I'll tell you is this. If the egg has not been washed, you can store it like that. It's not going to be a bad egg. And if you ever open an egg that's bad, it's not bad because it was stored that way. It's bad because it's a bad egg. And if you ever open a bad egg, you will know you've opened a bad egg. Humans have been feeding on eggs for a long time. I'm just going to say it. Um, the, the other side of this one, I guess I'd say my other suggestion with this is, especially if you have the new electric kettle that I recommend now that has got the much bigger lid so you're not sitting there fishing them out with tongs. My go-to for doing boiled eggs is the electric kettle. And basically you do the same thing uh, that Nicole said, except you don't even have to – there's no five-minute wait. Basically you put them in the kettle. The kettle comes to a boil, shuts itself off. You leave them in there for five minutes. And you evacuate in ice cold water. And you will get almost perfect eggs every time. And it will be faster than doing it with uh, a pot of water. And the reason it will be faster, and this is why boiling water is so much faster with an electric kettle, is that you will get heat not just from the bottom but from the sides. So an electric kettle basically heats around all you know three of the four sides of the water. The only thing not being heated is the surface. And so it's a much quicker, much more efficient way to boil water. And I'll put a link to the electric kettle that I recommend in the show notes for you as well. Um, the new one that I've I've settled on after I went away from the old Hamilton Beach model, it is amazing. And it also will let you, if you want to boil eggs and you want them soft-boiled, if you know what temperature you want them at, it's like a mini sous vide machine because you can set whatever temperature you want and you can even set keep warm, which will keep it within 8 degrees of that temperature. Now, if you're going to do a couple dozen eggs and you want to do like a soft yolk or something, get your sous vide circulator out if you have one. If you're going to do like four eggs fit perfectly in this, and you want to bring that temperature to that, you know, you're not going to overcook the egg if you set it to, you know, the temperature that you want the yolk brought to. It's It works just like sous vide. And But if you do that, you you leave it. Maybe 15 minutes at that temperature. And then when you evacuate, still go into that ice water bath. And I'll tell you that the longer an egg ages until you start getting to where eggs start to get bad, the easier that peeling will get. And what you'll notice when you peel an egg like Nicole talked about, it'll usually be the bottom side, kind of the fatter side of it. When you peel it, there'll be a big gap in there. And when you when you peel it, if you kind of you know, crack your egg, and then you, if you grab that bottom part where you, that that is, when you reach in there and kind of pinch it, it'll 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 break that membrane, and once you get under that membrane, it just pops off. And uh, yeah, this is something a lot of people never really notice a need for because they're buying irradiated eggs that are sixty days old. When you're when you're using fresh eggs, this is actually really important. It works for quail's eggs, but it doesn't work as good. I have never been able to really get quail's eggs where they're easy enough to peel that I'm willing to do what it takes to make a few quarts of pickled quail's eggs. If I make one quart, you're lucky. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and uh, take the next one. And I think we're hearing from Dr. Ken now. Yes, Dr. Ken Berry. I'm dealing with high blood pressure without medication.
6: Hello, Jack, and all of you survival woke friends. This is Dr. Ken Berry Answering a question for Joe today. Joe said, A friend of mine is in his 50s and was recently diagnosed with high blood pressure or hypertension and is being encouraged to take medication. He follows a typical healthy diet and doesn't show much interest in keto, paleo, carnivore, etc. Do you have any advice for dealing with it or resources I can point him to? Uh, yeah. Great question, Joe. I've got a couple of YouTube videos about hypertension and what you can do to lower it naturally without a handful of medications. Unfortunately, your friend is, if he starts taking one blood pressure medication, then he will be on a treadmill of then increasing the dose of that medication, then starting a second medication, and then a third to try to control his blood pressure. The majority of hypertension, in the U.S. today, and indeed in the world, is caused by chronic hyperinsulinemia. This causes you to hold fluid, and any time you increase the, the fluid in a system, you increase the hydraulic pressure in the system. That's what causes high blood pressure. This is why the majority of people who start a keto or a carnivore diet notice immediately that their blood pressure starts to return to normal. And they'll often have to stop one or two or three blood pressure medications because they don't need them anymore. And indeed, if they keep taking them, their blood pressure will go too low. Uh, Some few people have to wind up on a low dose of one blood pressure medication to keep their blood pressure ideal when eating keto or carnivore. But most people can get completely off medication. So if your friend would rather just take a pill, and not worry about his diet, then not only is he going to have to take increasing dosages and numbers of blood pressure medications, but he's going to also be suffering from all the other medical complications that come from being chronically hyperinsulinemic. Hope
0: this helps, Joe.
6: This is Dr. Barry. Thanks a lot, guys.
0: Let me say something else about what a keto diet can do that I've seen actually happen. So my wife, prior to us beginning our keto lifestyle, had one of these tests where they do all different kinds of scans of your body, like where you can see inside yourself like a picture. And one of her um, carotid arteries in her neck had a partial inclusion. Now, this was such that a doctor looked at it and said, that's perfectly normal for someone of your age, and we should keep an eye on it. It could become a problem, but it's not really a problem right now at all. It's very, very minor. But when you start to have that buildup, the belief that most people have is that it'll never go away. Well, about a year and a half, two years later, after living keto for almost all of that time, she went and had the same test done. It was gone. It was gone. Let me say it again. It was effing gone. Now, a lot of doctors will tell you that can't happen, that once that buildup begins, you're stuck with it, and what you're trying to do is prevent it from building up more. Uh, No, it was gone like a fart in the wind. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and uh, get into my subject today. Again, I I did a a Miyagi Mornings video, and if you don't watch the videos, it'll be on the uh, recap podcast tomorrow. They'll come out tomorrow morning. Um, But it was about why I think the idea of breaking up big tech is stupid, and I won't say anything more about that. Uh, today, If you want to listen to it tomorrow or go out and listen to the, the video segment today, you can do that. Uh, but the, the picture that I picked for the thumbnail for the video was a quote by John Pierce. And it is, the solution to a problem changes the nature of the problem. And I picked it for that because a lot of what people think of as a solution is not really the solution. And when you understand the solutions, then the problem itself either becomes not a problem or the nature of the problem itself changes. And I, I just was thinking about that as I was getting everything you know, done up from that and buttoning that all down and making sure it's out on all the distribution networks and all. I thought, man, how much does this apply to? How much does this apply to? The solution to a problem changes the nature of the problem. So let's, let's look at one of the things I've talked about many times in the past with when we were working with the Perma Ethos Farm in West Virginia and wanted to be able to sell raw milk. West Virginia is like the Naziest state, if that's a word, the Naziest state in the Union for raw milk. Like most states have some pretty simple solutions. You can have a cow share. So basically you can have members that all own the cow that you take care of and milk for them. Uh, you can't do that in West Virginia. Uh, state of Texas, you can't sell raw milk except in certain approved ways that are very complicated. Um, but you can sell raw milk for pet's food. So if you if you label the milk for pet food, because raw milk is a great food for dogs. It's a great food for cats. They like it. So that's a, a loophole, right? Well, West Virginia has closed that loophole. So when you look at it, it appears that there is no solution. So that would mean the only solution is to go to uh, the state, <laughs> to the master, and say, Please, sir. May I please have the right to consume a product from my neighbor, from their cow? Please, sir, may I? Right, And and basically lobby as an individual or as a small group to attempt to get the state to do something that clearly does not want to do, uh, that has clearly been uh, put in place by big food, that clearly has more money and power than you do, and can clearly create the illusion that they represent dairy farmers who don't want this, right? which is just nonsensical. So, it would seem that's all you have. So, the nature of the problem is that the state has prevented you from doing the thing that you said you want to do and you have no way out. But what did we do? Do you remember? Have you ever heard me talk about this before? We simply called the raw milk a soil amendment. And the problem ceased to be a problem. The problem literally went away, it was no longer a problem. It didn't exist as a problem anymore. This is for us, this is raw milk as a soil amendment. It's kept refrigerated so that all of everything will be active in it when you put it on your soil. Here's how you're to mix it with water at this ratio and do not use it in any way other than labeled. And, you know, I can't tell you to not drink anything. I can't control that. So that would change the nature of the problem. There's so many things that I, I, at times, I don't believe that when you find a solution to a problem, you change the nature of the problem, you reveal the nature of the problem. There's so many people that all the problems they point to, for, for going back to the state, with the state being in their way of something they want to do, and when you say, well, let's examine this, and you find ways around the state, and the person still does not take the action that they claimed that they wished to take, The nature of the problem was never the state. The nature of the problem was that they were making an excuse. That was the actual nature of the problem. They wanted to talk about a thing. They didn't actually wish to do the thing. They wanted to sound like they were motivated, but yet they were not motivated. If you're poor, there's a lot of different ways that you can look at a solution. One is we need more welfare and government programs, and the government should pay for my education so I can get educated and get a good job. That's one solution. And then that the nature of the problem is that there's not enough opportunity and there's not enough help, and there's just no way that you can. But the actual problem is you don't have any money. So if you immediately ask the question, well, how do I make money? What can I do of value? What can I improve my ability to deliver value on on my own? What opportunities exist around me? Do I have an asset that I'm not realizing? You know, there's a guy... He gets all his business from nextdoor.com in our area. So you know you're talking about a couple thousand people that are on our next door. and I'm sure there's like you know, word of mouth beyond that. like so somebody tells somebody that's not on next door, but the one is, you know I need somebody to do this for me," and then, "Oh, I know a guy," and then he builds his business both on and offline. but he built everything on nextdoor. He's an older retired gentleman. He has a pickup truck and a trailer. And when people need stuff that's bulky. That they can't go get for themselves, he goes and picks it up. You buy it, he goes and picks it up for you, and he charges you based on what, what you're doing and how much he feels like charging you today. You know, he makes a few hundred dollars a month, a week. I'm sorry, not working hard at all. You know, when my truck was down, one of the things we had him do for us, we needed six yards of soil, and I it, the, the delivery charge from the materials place is just stupid. Well, his trailer holds six yards, so he just backed the trailer and they dumped the dirt in. He dumped it with his trailer; didn't shovel it. It's a dump trailer. That's a really nice trailer, kind of expensive. Do you know how he bought the trailer? He started out with just the truck. So, there's an example like what? What does he need to be able to do that? And you might be like, well, they would need a permit. Where I'm at, do you think anybody cares? Do you think? And what's he going to get told to stop? A fine? Do you not build your loss into... So what is the solution? It changes the nature of the problem. The the nature of this gentleman's problem was... My retirement doesn't quite give me as much as I want. And I'm a little bit bored because I don't have anything to do. But I don't want a job. Well, the nature of the problem for many would be... Please, sir, may I have more of my own money back? Can you increase... Give us a raise to our Social Security... Or, hey, I got a truck. I'm not dead yet. I need something to do. I like to drive around and talk to people. And I can always say no to any job I don't want to take. Cause he will. He told me flat out like if there's something I don't feel like doing, I just don't do it. I don't work for anybody. I just this is a service I provide. Either you either you qualify for my time or you don't. He's a very nice guy, but also very direct. My father made a very good living for a lot of years. All he was doing is picking up old pallets and putting them back together and delivering them. But he was doing thousands and thousands and thousands of pallets a month. It was hard work. But he got up when he went, wanted to. He went to bed when he wanted to. He had a shitty old house with a great big backyard. It was kind of shitty, but it was fine to stack pallets in. He got a shitty flatbed truck and... Learn to throw uh, ratchet straps pretty high over the top of pallets and stack them like some crazy old man and drive around. He made a hell of a lot of money doing that. The nature, the solution to a problem changes the nature of the problem. How many places does this apply in our lives? And it's pretty much Everywhere. You can you can look at a thing and say you have a problem or you can look at a thing and say how is this changed into the solution? The problem is the solution in permaculture. At one time in my life I had this this beat ass ugly little aluminum John boat and there were certain things and features that I wanted in it that, you know, it just didn't have. And so the solution was we'll sell it for about the 800 bucks it was worth and buy a better boat that was going to cost thousands of dollars more when there was really nothing wrong with the boat. So I got into some forums and people did John Boat conversions and bought some plywood and some inexpensive carpeting and a few little attachments and some seats and some stuff like that, and I made it into a decent little bass boat. And I put about $500 into it, and again, it was worth about 800 and I, and, I, and I used it for a year and a half after I did this to it. And then I sold it for
5: $2,400.
0: The solution to a problem changes the nature of the problem. If we're going to go to somebody else outside of ourselves and ask for a problem to be solved or demand that a problem be solved, request, petition, lobby... We're never actually in control of the solution, and you're probably not even going to get what you want. Think about it this way. Have you ever hired somebody to do a thing for you, told them what you wanted, and then what they gave you wasn't what you said or wanted at all? Even though you were asking for a specific thing that you discussed, and they they said it back to you, and they were accountable to you, you were going to pay them or not pay them. Like, this is as easy as it gets. It's as little bureaucracy as possible. It's you and one person. Say a graphics designer. I want a graphic that looks like this. Okay, we're sure. Yeah, I want this to look like this, and I want this to say this, and I want it like that. Yeah, okay, great. They send it to you. This is not what we discussed. Well, I thought, no, no, I want this. I told you what I wanted. If I could do it myself, I would. Can you do this? Yes, I'll do this. And then it doesn't happen ordering a drink. I remember one time I was at a bar with Nick Ferguson and some other guys. Mark Shepard was with us. Uh, and, And it was like a really kind of small town area right off the interstate in Arkansas. And Nick's like, you want a margarita. Now, the way I make a margarita is the way you're actually supposed to make a margarita. There's no mixer in it. It's lime juice. It's Contro or Grand Marnier or something like that. It's tequila. There's no simple syrup in it. There's no sugar in it. It's certainly not in a great big glass like you used to get um, sodas in at a Pizza Hut in the 1980s. Big giant ones, or like Cece's Pizza still has like it's it, it's not that. And if it's that, it's not a margarita. And I'm like, I think I'm just gonna stick to beer, Nick. Because I know, I'm looking at some of these drinks being served in the giant glasses, and I know what we're going to get. We're going to get green Kool-Aid with some tequila in it, and I don't want that. And Nick's like, I'll go tell the bartender exactly how to make them. So he goes over and talks to him, and I see that there's a full explanation being given. And Nick comes back, he goes, yeah, he said he likes to make them that way. And... We're sitting there, and the girl brings the drinks over, and they're giant freaking Kool-Aid cups full of Kool-Aid and tequila. And Nick just looks at him. I just look at Nick like, I told you. And, and Nick takes the tray of drinks from us and says, I'm, I'm going to take these back to the bartender. This isn't your problem. And he walked back over there. And I see Nick talk to the bartender, and we're far enough away. We can't read lips or hear anything. And I look at Mark, and Mark looks back at Nick with me, and all of a sudden, you just see Nick put his face in his hands, like double face palm. And. Mark goes, well, what do you think just happened? I said, Nick asked him if he understood what he wanted him to do. The bartender said yes, and Nick asked him, why didn't you do it? And the bartender told him he didn't know. And Mark's like, there is no way you can possibly know that. Nick comes over. It was exactly verbatim what happened. He made us more drinks. They were in smaller glasses. They were still Kool-Aid with tequila. And we gave up and went back to beer. It was impossible to get this person to do a thing with a full explanation and understanding. What does that have to do with going to government and asking for a solution? If you can't get what you want, when both parties agreed to it, in a one-to-one ratio where you are the customer with the ability to take your business elsewhere. How do you think you're ever going to get what you want going through the bureaucracy of the state where you have people competing with you rather than the state competing for your business and the people competing with you don't care what you want. They want you subservient with a foot on your head. That's what I'm talking about. You cannot seek redress You cannot seek remediation. You cannot seek solution from the state. The only thing productive we're able to do when it comes to dealing with governance, when we're talking about state-level governance, is do what we can to remove, eliminate, obstruct laws. That's it. Asking them to proactively do something is stupid. Because the solution to the problem changes the nature of the problem, and that's a double-edged sword. When you enact your own solution, you control it, you adapt, you adjust. If you've made a wrong play, when you get the feedback loop like we talked about with Suzanne yesterday, you change it. Because you actually want the solution you said you wanted, if you're being honest with yourself. So when you say, I want this to happen, so I'm going to try A, and A doesn't work, or A makes it worse, you stop doing A, and you try B. When you ask the state to do something, the state can, is convinced A works, or they actually wanted the result to get from A anyway, take your pick, and then they go do that, and now you're stuck with it, and so is everybody else. So now, the solution, if it's individual, is adaptive, and adjustable, and fine-tunable until it works. The solution, if it comes from the state, will be inept, will be incompetent, will cause harm. I don't mean maybe here. And it will affect more than just the people that want the solution negatively, and it will affect the people that want the solution negatively of what as well. Now the solution to the problem has changed the nature of the problem in that it has made it worse. As I said in my video today, there is nothing the state has ever touched save for removing something they did in the first place that they have not made worse. They have never touched a thing and it got better because they touched it. What I said today is you can bring up the Civil Rights Act, but that was to remove all of the obstructions that were put in place by government. The government has never taken a thing and, and went proactively into it and not made it worse. They have made everything that they have ever touched worse and they only can make it worse they can't make it better the only thing government can do that's positive at all is either signal they won't get in the way of a thing there's no regulations and we'd have no intent to put any there and mean it which is rare but does happen or to get out of the way if they're already in the way that's it that's it People retire more poor today than they ever have in history in spite of Social Security. Social Security makes people apathetic. Social Security makes people poor. Social Security makes people dependent. Social Security robs money. The solution to the problem changed the nature of the problem. It took people who knew they had to take care of themselves and made them believe somebody else would. It made the situation worse. Everything they touch makes everything worse. Worse for everybody except the oligarchs, the technocrats, and the bankers. You see how simple this is? But it's not just about government. It's about you. In any situation where you have a problem, you should be seeking to change the nature of the problem by applying the proper solution. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Let me remind you guys, if you like this show and the work that we do, you can always help support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. If you do that, you'll help us out no matter what you buy and uh, everything you find on tspaz.com. I have, unless there's a very few things I've been given. And if it is, it's always disclaimed. It's like two out of like, I think there's over 400 items on tspaz and two I've been given. Maybe three. Uh, this one I was not given. I purchased it. Uh, Anchor doesn't talk to me. I really wish they would because I'd love to work something out with them on a higher level. But Anchor is one of my favorite electronics brands in the world. I believe they are the best value brand there is. I believe they're actually mainstream brand quality with a value brand price. That's how, I, Anchor, you owe me some money for that shit. Anyway, um, the PowerCore Slim 10,000 milliamp portable ch- ch- uh, chargers on sale. So it's only a few bucks off, but it's a great deal anyway. This is backup power for your phone and your other devices. One of the most important things that you can have, it'll, it'll charge an iPhone 12 2.3 times, call it twice, from dead zero. And, uh, man, you just will never be unhappy with Anchor products. And, again, this one's on sale. I think it's on sale for, like, $1699. Um, and, I mean, not you're talking about something that will provide you this much backup power. It takes up about the space of two decks of cards, in a go bag or a vehicle or what have you just a fantastic device and it's certainly if you do not have enough backup power for your mobile stuff uh, you need to have something and if if not the really big uh, 28,000 milliamp hour one that I recommend the E7 then at least this and if you have a big E7 and maybe you have this for your kids and so two is one and one is none but remember no matter what you buy as long as you start on tspaz.com you'll help support the show and the work that we do also want to remind you, you can always join the Member Support Brigade. Just go to thesurvivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more about that, or just throw a forward slash members at the end of it. Now let's talk about our song of the day. This one is a great song to go with my segment today where I'm talking about finding solutions and understanding that problems often are the solution, but sometimes you have to struggle through them. As we wrap up this week of Survivor music from the band Survivor, that's why we call it Survivor music because it's theirs. Um, we have a really great song called "Fire Makes Steel," and um, this one differs a little bit in the other three Survivor songs that uh, that we played for you this week. The the other three songs that I played for you were all kind of slower kind of love song type things. The stuff that Survivor, other than Eye of the Tiger, really are most known for, they're also all from the early 80s. Uh, a lot of, you know, Rocky and Karate Kid stuff kind of thing going on within them as well. Um, this song is was released in the 90s. I actually think, if I if I know my Survivor history right, it actually was composed around the same time of some of their bigger hits, um like Man Against the World and things like that, like we played earlier this week. But then it wasn't released until the mid I believe this song was released in ninety six. The other big difference to it is it's a much more up tempo song. So those songs again were kind of love song, balladish type, you know, kind of orchestratic uh, as I've said, two of them definitely could, could have been songs that I could have seen Queen doing during their heyday and really blowing it up. In fact, the the one I would love to see Queen today with that young guy that came off American Idol do it, I think it would be incredible to have them do a cover of that. Uh, but those songs were all done by Jimmy Jameson as the lead vocalist, and uh, that's where he was at his absolute best. This song, the lead vocals are are done by Jim Peterick, who was one of the original founding members of of, of the band Survivor, and uh, so it's it's totally more amped up because it came from that 80s era. Even though it's a mid 90s release, it sounds like 80s music. It sounds like something for a montage. My understanding, and I could be wrong, is that this. Song was actually originally intended for part of the Rocky series. I also could have seen this fitting well into the whole Karate Kid uh, thing. Those movies, by the way, were produced, I think, by the same, either produced or directed by the same person. And basically, Karate Kid was like, hey, we'll make a Rocky for teenagers. (laughs) Like, just, just saying. And then you had kind of the survivor overlay of both of them, along with Chicago infiltrating that world as well. Um, but this is just an awesome song, and it, it does kind of make you think of like some sort of action packed eighties montage. It's like a great like weightlifting workout song as well. Um and then the, again the message is pretty solid, you know. It you can't make steel without fire. You take you start with something that is inferior to steel, and you temper it and you purify it. In a very intense and and what looks like a very damaging process. And then you end up with an end result that is superior, so superior to where you began. You know, and in talking about finding solutions and understanding that changing the nature of the problem is in the solution itself. There are so many things that we have to go through in life that seem hard, that seem difficult. I remember being young and broke, and I mean, I was so broke, I I wasn't broke, I was poor. I was saving up to be broke. And I remember at times in my life thinking, why does it have to be so hard? And someone could have came and told me and explained it to me perfectly and been right, and I wouldn't have understood it then. But if you're willing to go through the fire... When you become steel, you can look at when you were a piece of raw iron ore. And you realize it had to be that way. You could have never become what you are without that experience. If somebody would have done it for you, they would have taken it away from you. They would have taken it away from you. Now think about that quote. Now think about that quote. Your problem is you're not where you wish to be in life. And if somebody does it for you, they will take away the experience that will make it such that it's amazing, that it's great, and it's sustainable once you achieve it. But you can fight through it. You can go through the pain. You can go through the suffering. You can go through doing without. You can make it happen. The solution to a problem changes the nature of a problem.